Thank you so much, Noah. And thank you everybody for uh, signing up and coming today. We really appreciate you doing this towards the end of your workday. Um, as you know, because you signed up for it, this is not uh, a webinar for the bankruptcy expert necessarily, although obviously everybody's welcome. Um, but we wanted to, at Veterans Legal Services, we wanted to make helping clients with consumer debt and financial issues and potential bankruptcy issues um, to, to be able to, we, we wanted to provide an opportunity for our pro bono attorneys or any attorneys that might wanna do pro bono to help these clients of ours, whether or not you have expertise in it, to kind of get a sense for uh, the way, the, the different struggles that our veterans face and the ways that you can um, help them out, you know, to the extent that you feel comfortable, but take away a little bit of the fear of like, oh, I don't know how to do bankruptcy, like what else can I do? So before we get started, I'll just tell you a little bit about uh, VLS. Um, in case you don't know, Veterans Legal Services, we are a nonprofit legal aid organization serving veterans that are residents of Massachusetts, military veterans, um, with civil legal aid matters. So the majority of our cases are in housing, family law, consumer debt, employment, bankruptcy, uh, some estate planning, and other um, benefits-related issues, in particular uh, veterans benefits, uh, social security benefits, and also specific to veterans as well, discharge upgrade matters. So um, that the, the people that are with us today are Scott Pitta. He is a staff attorney with Veterans Legal Services. And he is also a US Army combat veteran who served in Iraq um, as a Black Hawk helicopter pilot. After his time in the Army, he worked as a helicopter pilot for various federal government contractors as, and as an emergency medical helicopter captain. Scott earned his JD from Suffolk University's Law School in 2020 as a distinguished graduate of the Trial and Appellate Advocacy Program. Scott brings experience representing clients in various probate and family court cases, as well as administrative cases. He holds a Master's of Aeronautical and Astronautical Science and is an FAA certified airline transport pilot. Scott will be talking to us um, about uh, a lot of uh, the issues a veteran's face um, as a veteran himself and um, the veteran culture and the practices that they might um, become victim to when it comes to financial um, and credit and issues like that. And then we have Don Lastman, uh, who is a bankruptcy expert. He is a sole practitioner in Needham, Massachusetts, concentrating in the areas of bankruptcy, insolvency, and business reorganization since 1983 and has been on the panel of chapter seven trustees for the US Bankruptcy Court of, for the District of Massachusetts since 1995. Mr. Lastman is a fellow of the American College of Bankruptcy, the recipient of the US Bankruptcy Court District of Massachusetts Pro Bono Publico Award in 2014 and the 2019-2020 MCLE Scholar Mentor Award. He received his undergraduate degree in economics from Washington University in St. Louis and his law degree from the University of Pittsburgh. And he has also uh, taken cases uh, pro bono for Veterans Legal Services, which is something that we greatly, greatly appreciate. Thank you so much, John, for being with us today, as well as Scott. Um, and one last thing before I think I'll pass it along to Scott. Um, at the end, I'll have a flyer that you might have already, I think you should have already gotten uh, regarding the different ways that we welcome help from the private bar as pro bono attorneys. And I will post it towards the end of the presentation as well 
for you to um, maybe screenshot or whatever you need to do and so that you know how to contact us. So uh, now we'll leave it off uh, for Scott to start. Great, thank you, Angie. Let me go ahead and share my screen. There we go. All right. Always hate trying to get Zoom squared away. There we go. All right. So as Angie mentioned, uh, my name is Scott Pitta, staff attorney with Veterans Legal Services. My contact information is there on the first slide and uh, Noah will be sending out these slides in a few days. <clears throat> Excuse me, uh, the pollen's getting to me today. Um, so if you have any questions that you think of after the program, feel free, shoot me an email and I'll be happy to chat with you. I'm just gonna talk very briefly about basically military cultural competency, uh, what you can expect from military service members and veteran clients that walk through your door. Um, you know, veterans, we, we tend to be a little bit different. Uh, we act differently, we talk differently. So I'm just gonna go over that. If you have any background with the military, a lot of this is going to seem very, very basic. It's intended to be basic. Uh, it's really for folks that don't have a lot of interaction with folks in the military. So uh, with that said, we'll start off with how do you address the, the service member? If they're actively in the service or they, they've recently gotten out, uh, the big thing I tell people is not everybody's a soldier. Uh, my, my friends in the Marine Corps, they hate being called a soldier. So if they walk in the door and if you don't know, which branch of service they served in, uh, you can refer to them as, you know, just a veteran or, you know, service member. Yeah. But if you want to get very technical, Air Force is, they refer to them as airmen. Uh, Army is a soldier. Coast Guard is Coast Guardsman. Marine Corps is Marine. Navy is a sailor. Uh, last time I gave this presentation, somebody pointed the fact that it is it's not very gender inclusive. It's still, you know, airmen, not air person. That's that's the terminology that is in use today. Um, you know, just know that that is that is what it is right now. So, <clears throat> as far as when they walk in the door, you can usually tell. Um, most military members or former military members, they have a different way of talking, different way of standing. Uh, there's a judge at the uh, Family and Probate Court, I believe in Norfolk, who always says that he, he can spot veterans right off the bat from the way they stand uh, as they walk into the court. There's a, a certain position called parade rest that, you know, they'll be standing with their, their arms and hands behind their back, very straight. Uh, they will use, you know, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. Um, you know, and that is, it, it's, if they refer to you that way, that is a sign of respect. It is, uh, it's not meant in any other way other than just pure respect for, for you and your position. Uh, your veterans will they'll communicate very directly. They're, they're going to use very precise words. Uh, they will use you know, the word correct. They will not use the word right for the most part. 
the the example I give is if you're in a convoy driving through a combat zone and somebody says, do I need to turn left? And the person says, right, meaning correct. And then the convoy turns right and then they find themselves in the wrong area. Things go downhill from there. So you learn very quickly you know, to use very, very functional language. Um, <clears throat> some of the concepts that you're going to run into are when you're, you're looking at the person's military service, some of the questions you may need to answer are, well, what, what type of service were they in? Were they in the regular military that's 24 hours a day, seven days a week? That's what you typically think of with your military members. They live on or near a base. That is their full-time job. Um, <clears throat> and so the, the units... I won't get into the units. I, I don't want to get too in, into the weeds on any of this. But those are your active duty service members. That is their full-time job. The other side of the coin is what you see the commercials for, you know, serve your country one weekend a month, two weeks a year. That's your reserve component. That is That can be either the reserve or the National Guard. Those are both reserve components of the military. The only real distinction between the reserve and National Guard as far as what we need to talk about today is that both the reserve and the National Guard, while they serve part-time, they can both be activated under federal orders to go on a deployment overseas or locally within the US. Uh, but the National Guard can also be called up by each individual state governor. They can be activated on a state active duty, which is different from federal active duty. And the reason I wanna bring that up is because some of the veterans benefits that are out there require them to be on federal orders, not state orders. So that might be something that you run into. It's rare, but just, I wanted to, draw that distinction in case you run into it. Uh, <clears throat> you see under bullet point two, it says active duty for training. When a reserve component or national guard, a reserve or national guard soldier or service member, I'm an army guy, I always say soldier. Um, I'm breaking my own rule, but when a reserve component service member joins, they're going to go through boot camp. They're going to go through their tech school uh, and any specialized schools. Well, those are full-time schools. They can't, you can't do boot camp one weekend a month, you know, two weeks in the summer. So you have to go somewhere for two months, three months, whatever. So they're placed on active duty for a short period of time. And that is active duty for training. So again, the, uh, drawing this distinction versus active duty and active duty for training, because for most federal benefits, most VA benefits, things like that, they require active duty and active duty for training does not count. You know, we find in the Massachusetts state veterans benefits, a lot of times that also plays in. So when you're reviewing the records to see if they qualify for any benefits or things like that, those are some things you wanna look at. I, I don't want to get too in the weeds on this, as I keep saying, because we could do an eight-hour CLE just on veterans' benefits, and 
we just don't have that kind of time today. So, uh, so you have active duty that's 24 seven, 365 active duty for training is reserve component soldiers who are serving on active duty just to get through their training. Then active reserve, those are the folks that are in your, you know, one weekend a month, two weeks a year, that's how they're serving. Then you also have inactive duty, individual ready reserve, retired reserve, and there are some others that, again, really go down a rabbit hole, but your inactive duty, these are people that are not actively showing up one weekend a month, two weeks a year. Um, inactive duty includes parental leave, things like that, where a service member, they just don't, okay, you know what, you're just going to be a civilian for a couple of months. It will not really a civilian, but you'll come back and serve, finish out your obligation, or it can be used to, as someone is getting out, they're not actively showing up, they're not doing formations, they're not running, you know, five, 10 miles. Uh, same with your individual ready reserve. These are people that can be called back to the military. Retired reserves that, again, they can be called back, but those are folks that have completed 20 years of military service, have retired, and they remain in this retired reserve status until they turn age 60. And after age 60, they can't be called back, but before that, they can. So, and it, it does happen. I was in Iraq with a couple of other pilots that flew in Vietnam. So, it happens. The branches of service, we talked about the branches of service and one that I left off here is the Space Force. So before I see that in the chat function or the Q&A, I admit it, I left it off, my bad, Space Force should be on there, okay? Uh, but a lot of people don't realize that there are other uniform services that also qualify for federal benefits, including the Public Health Service, uh, NOAA, the National Oceanographic, uh, God, I always forget the A and the A. It's something administration. Oh, I drew a blank on that one. I should have had notes. Um, that's what I get for trying to go without notes, Andy. <clears throat> but not every, not everybody who works for those agencies qualifies for veterans benefits. It's only the um, the uniformed officers, or the, um, the the uniformed members of those agencies. So they're sort of like a quasi-military. Um, NASA is another example. And another key concept I wanted to talk about is the, the big dividing line between the military are your enlisted ranks and your officer ranks. So your enlisted personnel are the folks you typically think of when you think of somebody joining the military right out of high school, you know, 17, 18, 19 years old, they raise their right hand, sign a contract, and they're off on an enlistment contract for three years, four years, five years, whatever it is, they serve that period of time, and then they're out. Or they can re-up, they can sign up for another period of time and continue serving that way. Uh, your officers, they will serve indefinitely. Your officers are commissioned through some sort of officer candidate school, ROTC, uh, your military academies, things like that. And they will have an active duty service obligation called an ADSO. And they will serve at a minimum until the date of their service obligation. 
After that, they continue to serve until they resign. Those are really the, the two big distinctions there. One other thing I wanna point out is the difference between rank and grade. So rank is the, the name of the person's rank, like a captain or a lieutenant, uh, an admiral. When you're looking at the pay documents, you're not going to see that anywhere. You're going to see a letter and a number, an O3, an O6, E1, E, E9. Okay, that is the grade, it's the pay grade. Your lowest enlisted rank is E1, your lowest officer rank is O1, and you'll see the W1 and W5, those are your warrant officers. That's, the, it's very rare to see them for the most part. There, there's not a lot of warrant officers out there, but they are officers that are, um, they don't serve a command role. They serve as technical specialists. Most of the Army helicopter pilots are warrant officers. <clears throat> and a service member's pay is based on whatever their grade is and their years in service. So there'll be a chart that has you know, pay grade down one side, years of service across the top, where the two meet, says how much they get paid. So how do you address them? Well, your enlisted folks, you typically address them by their rank, private, sergeant, uh, petty officer, chief petty officer, officers typically referred to as sir or, ma or ma'am, uh, born officers, Mr. or Miss. As far as how things break down and the, the chain of command, it starts at the president, down to the Department of Defense, and again, Space Force should be on here, similar to Air Force, Navy, Army. And one thing you want to notice is the Marines, although they hate being reminded of it, they are actually part of the Navy. So uh, we always like to give my Marine friends a hard time about that one. But uh, and then Coast Guard, well, technically as part of Department of Homeland Security, in times of war, the authority for the Coast Guard can be shifted over to the Navy. And then you've got the Department of Veterans Affairs is over there on its own. So if you're looking for records or something like that for, from a veteran, I want you to see this so you know who you need to speak to. Uh, typically, each of the branches have their own records department. After the service member leaves the military, the records are then supposed to be transmitted to the Department of Veterans Affairs and the National Archives. So while they're in, you want to talk to the Department of Defense or the individual branch. Once they're out, should be Department of Veterans Affairs and the National Archives. How does a veteran leave the military? How does a service member leave the military and become a veteran? I'm not going to delve into each one of these. I'm just gonna to touch on these very, very high level, but administrative separation, this is done through regulations. It's either the person has served their time and their enlistment contract is up and they're just getting out. Uh, they get a DD-214, which is their discharge papers. And it's a very important document. It's going to be really the key to just about any benefit out there. Um, Administrative separation can also be uh, for officers who resign, that sort of thing. You have punitive separations. 
these can happen when someone's getting into trouble. Uh, they're going through the Uniform Code of Military Justice, some sort of a court martial, and a couple of things can happen. They can go through the full court martial and then be told, okay, you're, you're guilty and we're also throwing you out. Uh, what happens more often than not is some sort of a plea bargain that allows the person to be discharged with a general discharge rather than an honorable discharge. And you know, that way they don't get a dishonorable discharge or some other other than honorable discharge that can really harm their ability to get VA benefits later. Third one, retirement, obviously, that sort of falls under the administrative separation, but it is kind of its own unique thing. Uh, medical discharge, medical retirement, if somebody is medically unfit to continue, in the military, they'll either be discharged or if they qualify, they can get a medical retirement, which entitles them to you know, pay and benefits into the future. And I talked about resignation. The transition process, about 175, 200,000 active duty and 100,000 reserve service members leave the armed forces every year. While we spend a lot of time and effort training civilians to come into the military. We spend very little time training military members to go back out into the civilian world. So this causes a lot of problems. Uh, if you can imagine your you know, 17, 18, 19 year old signs up for a three year uh, enlistment and their housing, they live in the barracks, they get a paycheck, shows up the first and the 15th of every month, their food is all paid for, Really, it's all disposable income. Uh, they've never had to pay rent, pay utilities, anything like that. Um, you know, it, it, they haven't learned those skills yet. So the very bottom point here, you know, eight and 10 service members leave without having a job lined up. They go out, they're unemployed. They have difficulty getting housing, arranging their finances, healthcare, planning for the future. And 40% or more leave without permanent housing. So you know, that, that is a, a really interesting, uh, when I saw that, I was like, wow, that's, I never even considered that. But doing this job for actually a year and a half now, I, I can see the impact that it has. Now, as they get out, there, are, there will be a whole slew of veterans benefits that they could qualify for. So I always like the question, what is a veteran? Um, people always ask, you know, oh, are you a veteran? Well, it depends. Each benefit out there, whether it's state, federal, they all have their own criteria. It's very fact intensive. And in this CLE, there's no way I could possibly go into does the person qualify? A good question to ask, the best question I think to ask is, have you ever served in the military? And if the answer is yes, refer that person to their local uh, veteran service officer or veteran service organization or their veterans agent. So every city and town in Massachusetts has a veterans agent whose job it is to assist the local veterans of their community with applying for benefits. Veteran service organizations are organizations such as 
disabled American veterans, the VFW, American Legion, those organizations also have people who work full-time assisting veterans applying for benefits. So you can see here the two definitions that I have for, you know, does the person qualify for these different benefits? It, it's really very different between the two. So just ask them, have they ever served in the military? And if so, you know, you can, you can contact us at VLS, uh, but the, the local veteran agents, that's, that's what they do. They're very, some are, you know, some are better than others, just like attorneys. And uh, so, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> but if you have any questions, feel free to reach out. We're, we're happy to help. Talked a little bit earlier about um, some of the problems that service members run into with their finances. You, know, you have young folks who are just learning how to manage their finances. And one of the big issues that they run into is if they have a problem with, their, with managing their finances, it affects their career in the military. So if somebody is struggling to pay the bills and you know, they're, they're really having a hard time with finances, that affects their morale, their ability to perform their job, it, which can then have a negative impact on the overall unit, on their operational readiness rate, which that is how their commanders are measured for their own evaluation. So that's gonna get a lot of attention. The big one here is if that person holds a job that requires any sort of a security clearance, if they don't have a good credit score, they might not get that security clearance or they might lose it. And then they won't be able to continue in that career field. So that could be very problematic. So some things that can be minor infractions for us in the civilian world can be major, major issues for service members while they're still in the service. Uh, if you bounce a check, for example, everybody around the military base knows that's a big no-no. Um, one, because it creates an issue for the security clearance, but it also makes everybody in the military look bad, uh, especially for people of higher rank and officers. Uh, bouncing a check will get you standing in front of the commander faster than just about anything else. Um, I'm not going to go into a full in-depth discussion on that, but uh, just know that that is, a, that is a big issue. So when they come to you with these major financial issues, their stress level is going to be very, very high. And how does this typically happen? Well, we've got this nice little picture. This is your standard looking out the gate of your military base and all the way down the street, you're going to see title pawn, check cashing, uh, just about every possible business that you could think of that you wouldn't want to have uh, to, as far as um, trying to help people maintain financial stability. You know, the, the stereotypical thing you'll see is the 18 to 20 year, 21 year old. Uh, the first thing they do is go out and buy an expensive car on a five or six year loan, 20, 30% interest rate. And well, now they have a six-year car loan, but they only had a three-year enlistment contract. So when they get out of the military, 
can they pay that loan? Probably not. Uh, a lot of times young folks will get, they'll get married because they get paid more in the military if you have dependents. And well, they get married for the wrong reason. And then you're moving all over the world, uh, lots of stress. A lot of times it leads to divorce. Divorce causes financial problems. So yeah, that's typically what you'll end up seeing with folks struggling with their finances coming out of the military. Do we have any questions? I'm trying to stop sharing. Where is it? There it is. I covered it up. If people do have questions right now and they do come up throughout the rest of the presentation, please just drop them in the Q&A and I'll have us deal with it at the end. Now that it's 4.31, so we'll have Don um, take over on his portion of the presentation. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. Yeah, Andrew, Scott, thanks for, um, thanks for having me. So um, what I want to talk about is, or are, I guess, or is a better word, uh, some common financial problems and solutions that um, you can provide to financially challenged members of the, uh, uh, of the veteran community. And um, my outline was provided in the chat function, so everybody should have that. Um, I'm not going to share it um, at this moment because I don't know. I'd rather you see me than that because I think it's a little more, a little more interesting and effective. So um, uh, with that, um, what I'm going to focus on, I think there's some really important things um, to think about. First is identifying what the financial problems are and who has them and, um, and who they affect, right? So people frequently are embarrassed uh, by their financial difficulties and you have to, um, sometimes it can be difficult conversation to get started. So you have to start slowly. Um, it's more important to listen than to talk. Uh, uh, I have found because eventually the story will come out, but I, I don't try to cut it off. I think in those initial um, discussions, listen, um, and, and then where necessary or appropriate, interject, but I usually let the client go because they'll just kind of dump it all out. And then you can kind of sort what is most important and what to deal with. Um, be aware of... Um, the sources of the financial difficulty. Sometimes it's not, sometimes the source is not the person sitting in front of you. Um, they could be there, um, but the debt might have been the result of someone else who's not there. Um, and also may have been, um, uh, may, may, may still be, may still be accumulating. So you have to make sure you have to think about uh, who your client is. Is it the person in front of you or might it be um, someone that the person in front of you is is in a is in a relationship with or, or somehow related to, um, or is it not the person in front of you's problem at all? It's really somebody else. So you know who is your client and how will you solve that problem? And and that's really crucial. Uh, many um, problems for attorneys develop when they. Um, address the problems of the person in front of them, and but neglect the impact of addressing those problems on someone else who may be a 
co-debtor. So solving the person, one person's problem might just shift all the issues from you know, client A to co-debtor, not client B. And then that person has all the problems and they're like, well, wait a minute, we, you were supposed to help us and now all you've done is shift, you've problem shifted. And that, that's really kind of um, a bad result. So think carefully about who has the problem and exactly what the problems are and, and be prepared for clients that will kind of talk around the problem for a while until you can kind of get through that. So having gotten through that um, or you know, that challenge and, and kind of becoming comfortable with the client, so the client's comfortable with you and, and talking about these issues, uh, I'm typically working on uh, budgeting. Um, and there are, are many good forms um, uh, for budgeting, but thinking about income, right? Receipts and disbursements, income and expenses, kind of, kind of looking at that because that will give you a good sense of where the client will be headed. Is it a budget issue that is plainly attributable to one or two particular things? I've had clients that come in they have several cars that they don't need. If they offload one, their balance will be restored. And right now, guess what? You can get rid of cars and they're worth more than the debt. So it's an opportunity to kind of look at, at, at where the money comes from and where it goes. And is there an opportunity to balance that in some way over time or not, right? Um, so bankruptcy is always the last alternative. And that's the kind of looking at the budget and seeing this will never resolve. But there are a lot of opportunities to address credit problems well short of that. And all of this does not attend to the issue that Scott mentioned about credit worthiness and how important that is for military members to maintain, right? So I'm gonna kind of skip past that because it, 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 it overlays all of this, but I'm gonna assume that out of the equation just for the moment. So budget discussions have occurred. Uh, in many cases, I will, before meeting with the client, send them a budget um, form. The bankruptcy schedules um, contain great budget forms. There, there's two schedules in the bankruptcy forms. And I will typically send those to a client in advance and say, bring this with you. you know, try, do the best you can with this. Um, to just kind of get a sense. So they're thinking about where their income from, comes from and where it's going. And that can be eye-opening for many people because they have not done any budgeting. The check comes in, it's automatically deposited into their bank account and it's spent. And they haven't really thought carefully about where it goes. Uh, I found credit card negotiation to be um, very effective for many clients. And so there's an opportunity to address the particular problem, solve it and be done. And um, it becomes more complicated if there are numerous credit cards. So I think credit card negotiation is most effective with lesser numbers of credit cards, lesser being I'd say two or three. Um, the more credit cards there are, the more difficult it becomes because the credit card companies you want to get everybody on board for the same amount, but some credit card companies will want 
80%, some will want 50%, some will do a payment plan, and then they all want to know what everybody else is doing. And they want to make sure they're not getting treated worse than anybody else. So if there are a lot, it becomes unmanageable. But if there aren't, then a credit card negotiation is great. You'll have to fill out a letter, your client will have to fill out a letter of representation, right? Because the credit card company won't talk to you unless they have a letter of representation. Um, it can be time consuming. Typically, I will have the client communicate with the credit card company to obtain the letter of representation form they want to use. Uh, the phone number and whatever other information might be necessary so that I can call right in and get right to a representative that has authority to talk about the uh, credit. The credit card companies typically prefer a lump sum. That can be a challenge, right, for many people. Um, not all. The uh, credit card negotiations that I've found to be most successful is where there's a family member that will um, fund the lump sum payment, in essence, substituting themselves for the credit card company. So that the credit card company is owed $7,500, you're able to negotiate a 50% reduction to $3,750, and the um, veteran has a family member that can lend that money, uh, interest-free perhaps, and so the payments that were previously being made to the credit card company can then be made to the family member over a period of time without interest, maybe with interest, whatever. Um, but it's an opportunity if there are family members available, right? If there aren't, then different things have to happen. But uh, I found this to be very effective. Payment plans are typically not something that I've had a lot of success with. Um, all credit card companies um, send out bills every month that is in effect a payment plan, right? So if you're behind on your credit cards, the payment plan probably is not working great to begin with. So I think that um, I found the lump sum, if that's an opportunity, uh, to be more effective. So you'll need a source of funding for negotiated settlement. Again, think about the impact on co-signers. Um, I'm finding most credit cards are in the 25 to 40% range. So there's significant reduction. And you have to think about tax consequences, right? Because forgiveness of debt is income. Uh, many clients that won't matter, um, but for some it might. So you have to think about that. So credit card negotiation can be very effective as opposed to the more drastic uh, bankruptcy filing. Um, there are debt management companies. So there's debt management and debt settlement. They're very different. Debt settlement companies, I think, are problematic. Debt settlement companies do what I just told you about. So they're negotiating with the credit card companies. But I think if you have one credit card, it might be effective. But if you have more than that, I find that many people that file bankruptcy, I find on their bankruptcy petition, they are listing debt settlement companies as being uh, either a creditor owed money or someone to whom they've paid money but got no relief. So a debt settlement company, what, the, what their model is, let them negotiate with the creditors. Your credit cards will go into default and you may or may not get sued. Um, you pay a lump sum amount to the debt settlement company every month. And once it gets up to what they consider to be enough, they then try to negotiate with each of the credit card companies. But the problem is that they're taking a fat fee out of every monthly payment you're making and the creditors aren't getting paid and they don't control them. So 
they're building up this reserve and maybe it'll be enough, maybe it won't. But in the meantime, some creditors are getting service, some aren't. And it just, it just, I have not seen many of my clients are what I would call debt settlement refugees. They were with the debt settlement company, went nowhere. So I think you have to be very careful. What's a debt settlement company? Freedom debt relief, national debt relief, Pacific debt relief. There's probably Atlantic debt relief, right? There's some location for everybody. So um, I, I would be very wary of those. There are debt management companies, right? So there's debt settlement, debt management. Debt management companies have lower fees and rates, and they are doing repayment plans. And they can be, they're not for-profit as opposed to the debt settlement companies that are for-profit. And they're typically members of the National Foundation for Credit Management. One that I have found very effective is American Consumer Credit Counseling. Um, and they actually have a, phys or they, last time I checked, they had a physical location in Newton. So um, I have found, I have, I have um, referred clients to them and let them negotiate a um, arrangement for repayment. Um, they have relationships with many of the credit card companies and uh, I found them to be um, effective. So I think debt management can work and can be a lower cost alternative to a lawyer doing the work. Uh, home mortgages and automobile loans. I'll, let, me, let me chat a little bit about those. Um, I don't do a lot of home mortgage modification. That's really kind of a slice of, I'd say, an expertise area you have, um, and I, I just haven't gotten too engaged in it. Um, I think there are some attorneys that specialize in it, don't know how effective they are, right? I know the modification process, it, you, you have to be extremely well organized and keep track of everything you're doing and follow the rules and kind of keep track of timing. So it's, it's, it's cumbersome. Um, a lot of people file bankruptcy and do the modification in bankruptcy court because they, the modification can be going on and the mortgage company at the same time can be pursuing a foreclosure. So they can do two things at once. Uh, and so many people will file bankruptcy to provide additional time to accomplish the mortgage modification. So um, with respect to automobile loans, um, automobiles can in some cases be surrendered in full satisfaction of the debt or work out a restructure where you're restructuring the terms and conditions of the auto, uh, of the auto loan. And I think, I think that auto lenders are more receptive to that now, particularly because their collateral is worth a lot more now. Um, so many auto loans historically are upside down. Cars worth a lot less. Um, I'm finding that to be less so now. So you tried credit card negotiation. There were four or five creditors. You just can't kind of get them all to agree or it's too time consuming, it's too expensive, your client doesn't have anyone that can fund a lump settlement. Um, debt management was um, problematic because while it can work for credit card companies, guess what, your client has some medical bills or your client has some family members that are owed money or things that debt management, these not-for-profits, they don't address, right? They're good for credit cards, but not a lot of other kinds of debts that clients, clients may have. So, you know, and you're backed up, your client's backed up against the wall. They're concerned, they're, they're being sued in state court. They have no defense. 
there may be a wage attachment coming or a garnishment. They may be worried about their uh, car being attached. Um, I don't see that too frequently anymore because the exemptions in Massachusetts are so substantial, but nevertheless, just the stress of the calls and the letters um, can be a lot, right? So if all else fails and you're unable or on, and your clients are either unable uh, and the creditors either unable or unwilling to negotiate, then there's always a bankruptcy alternative. Um, most of the um, pro bono cases that I've handled have been relatively straightforward. And so I think if this came through from BLS, you could probably get a bankruptcy uh, mentor that would you know, provide assistance. Um, there are very good bankruptcy basics classes that would kind of provide you with a building block if you wanted to get into a simple consumer bankruptcy case. I know Mass Continuing Legal Education has a very good bankruptcy basics two-day program, and you can watch that over two days and get a very good sense of what bankruptcy is all about. But I think what pushes people into bankruptcy is, is their debt is is simply overwhelming. There's no, it's unlikely that you're going to be able to negotiate a reasonable settlement that they could fund, um, and or your creditors just won't. They're just obstructionists. They won't. They don't want to resolve anything. Or your clients, the psychological toll is just enough. They just need to be. They need to get a fresh start, right? And that's what bankruptcy does. So bankruptcy is a way to resolve everything at one place at one time. And your client has home field advantage, you know, for a sports analogy, because bankruptcy courts are courts of, of uh, restructuring and debt forgiveness, uh, whereas state courts can be a little more harsh. I mean, I've had clients actually put in jail for failure to pay something. So it's, it's happened. So unusual. But, but it can. So I think that bankruptcy court is really more attuned and that's what bankruptcy court is for, to take care of credit problems so that they can become productive members of society again and get past, um, past the issue. So uh, those are the benefits, the burden. Um, it, it's not free, right? There's a filing fee has to be paid. Um, there's an attorney fee in most cases. Um, um, it does impact, um, a person's uh, credit for seven, for seven to 10 years. So it will have future repercussions. Um, I don't think that is a game changer though. The impact on credit I think is oversold really. Um, I think um, a lot of credit card companies view people that are coming out of bankruptcy actually as very credit worthy because they have no debt. And many times you can get a co-signer. So I think that it, it does have an impact on credit but I just, I don't see that as a, as a big problem. Uh, if you file bankruptcy, a trustee is appointed, um, and so your client will have to answer questions. So you have a trustee that will look through the financial records to make sure your client's telling the truth. But you're, you know, you as their counsel will have done that. Um, so you should vet to see if there are going to be any problems in advance. Uh, and um, uh, you know, you, you, your benefit, another benefit, is that you can keep most of the most people keep all their assets. Uh, because the exemptions in Massachusetts are really very, um, very generous, right? So you have a half a million dollar homestead exemption. Many of the clients I have on a pro bono basis don't have a home, but they have a car. There may be some equity in the car, they'll keep it. Their bank accounts, they'll keep that. 
uh, their clothing, their personal effects, they'll keep those. They're all exempt under Massachusetts law. So they'll come in with their property and leave with their property. Uh, they'll come in with their debt uh, and they'll leave the debt behind, right? So that's just kind of a, a lightness that really, that really helps them. Um, there's chapter sevens and chapter 13s, right? Um, chapter seven is very speedy, no repayment plan, debt discharge. Um, biggest exceptions in chapter seven to discharge and in chapter 13 as well, really. Um, any secured debt not affected by bankruptcy unless you're gonna give away the collateral. So if you have a car and your client doesn't want it anymore and they're gonna surrender it, you can get rid of the debt, but you don't have the car anymore. Um, student loan debt, right? There's a lot of talk about student loan debt becoming dischargeable, but it is it is very it it can be dischargeable in, in bankruptcy, but under very limited circumstances. Um, almost kind of like a, a hopelessness of a financial condition. And um, then um, taxes. So really, it's taxes and student loans are the big non-dischargeable groups. And also, if your client is paying support alimony, child support, something like that, not dischargeable. Uh, chapter 13, repayment plan over three to five years. So that's the big difference. Chapter seven, no repayment plan, debt discharged. Chapter 13, you pay something back. How much do you pay back? What you can. And the court has a elaborate means test to figure out what your income and what are your expenses and how much you can pay. So the court doesn't just come up with some number. It's not 100%. It's whatever the means test says you should be able to pay. It may be 0% or it may be 100%, whatever that comes out to be. Um, so in the military or the some things to think about, in particular with respect to veterans, um, they have certain protections on their income. Um, so you have to be careful about that and, and how it gets apportioned or used in means tests. Um, uh, types of benefits are not taken into consideration or in the calculation. Um, some veterans I've seen have been subject to overpayment debt. So they've received benefits in excess of what they're supposed to get. Is that dischargeable in bankruptcy? Not 100% clear. Um, so you have to be careful about that. Um, computing or just looking at um, a military uh, a veterans um, or even active, I guess, more active duty is where I've seen it more. They're, um, their pay stubs are really complicated, okay? They just are. Um, veteran benefit, not so much, right? Veteran benefits, no. But active duty is really, they're hard to figure out. Um, so that's, um, that's everything I have. I see something, a little note in the chat, maybe I'll just read that. It says, or there's a chat about clients being very limited means, right? So that's right, M many clients, will not have the financial wherewithal or backing to do a negotiation. So it's always something you absolutely want to explore because you don't want to miss it if they do. And you know, if it's one credit card for a, a, you know, a reasonable amount and you might be able to get them out quick, just explore it. Doesn't mean you're going to do it, but you know, kind of go through kind of the checklist of items I have before you get to bankruptcy, just so you've made sure because bankruptcy is a big deal, right? You're signing documents under penalties of perjury. You have to attend a creditor's meeting. You have to testify under oath. Sign your credit report for seven to 10 years. You know, there's a lot of stuff that flows from that. So it's not nothing. And if you can negotiate and not have to do it, I think clients would prefer that route. So yeah, and happy to take any questions if there are any. 
Thank you so much, Don. Um, I just wanted to add that, uh, you know, we, it, it's so refreshing to sort of see that there's so many options or so many other things you can look through before filing for bankruptcy, because a lot of the times the clients, since they don't know, they call us and they say, I need to file for bankruptcy. And that's my issue. And then just when you do that process of talking to them, letting them tell you everything and figure out what's really going on. And oftentimes it takes a while because they go around the issue. Like you said, I've experienced that in, in many, many areas of law, but when it comes to money, it's like so hard to understand exactly where the debt is coming from. But once you get through, you realize, okay, there are some things here that maybe we could do to figure it out and to help them short of them having to go to bankruptcy. And then they'll, they'll breathe a sigh of relief because they, they think like they can handle this. Yeah, and really, it's, it's also the big thing is the impact on others because many times, you know, this is joint debt. And so their problem actually is somebody else's problem or gonna become their problem. And that can really be a, um, a, a kind of a, a dead stop when that, that comes up. Definitely. Um, does anybody else have any questions? We have a couple of minutes, but we don't need to keep you until right about five if you don't have questions. <laughs> I'll just, what I can do is just share my screen real quick to give you a quick rundown of the ways that you can help our veterans, thank them for their service without just saying thank you for your service. Um, at VLS, we take all kinds of help um, from attorneys from the private bar. You can provide one-time consultation or advice. You could have an interview, an in-depth interview with the, with the veteran and get them to think about these issues that Don talked about uh, and, to, and perhaps send them a budget. And even just if we can't take the case any further because we're at capacity or you are, you can only help a little bit. Um, that will be helpful to the veteran more than not having that. Then we can do, um, you can take a case for limited assistance, um, draft a letter to a creditor, negotiate settlement offers, credit card um, settlements, all those things can be done. Um, drafting pleadings even, if you're comfortable drafting a pleading but you're not comfortable agreeing to do the bankruptcy for them. Um, any level, honestly, we're, we're happy to take you on as a pro bono attorney and um, to uh, email an SOS to Dawn or somebody else to help if something comes up with, if somebody has a question and, or you don't feel like you know exactly what to do in the particular case. Uh, but you do not have to take a full representation case um, when you agree to do pro bono work with VLS. Um, yeah, what I found is a great way to participate is just what you said. So I'll make my, uh, you know, my self accessible if Angie or Scott have a kind of a bankruptcy related question like, well, is this debt gonna be dischargeable? Boom, just send me a note and then I can get back. So that's a good way just to make yourself available kind of as a resource to VLS. And you know, if the case develops, then it does, you'll come back. But at least right. they can reach out to somebody and say, hmm, not sure about this, but I don't necessarily need the veteran to talk directly, but let me try, try to deal with this. And you know, I, th I think I found that to be a very effective way to help out. Yeah, thank you. And then my email is at the bottom of that, which like I said, you probably got as well. I don't know, in my screen, it's covered up by some buttons. Hopefully you can see it. Um, 
but it's uh, it's Angie at veteranslegalservices.org and I am the pro bono director. So you can reach out to me if you don't already work with us as a pro bono partner, please feel free to reach out with any questions or reach out to your firm's pro bono counsel there and tell them that you wanna be on the list next time that VLS reaches out. And I think that's, since I, we didn't get any other questions, I think that's gonna be it. Um, we really appreciate everybody that showed up and um, for your interest. And thank you so much to Scott and Don for coming and, and helping us clear some of this information out for people. All right, thank you. Thanks so much for the opportunity.